Whatever your political or religious position, the subject of reproductive rights is as fundamental as any private healthcare decision. My next guest is writer and editor Elizabeth Hines, who spearheaded the recent anthology Aftermath, Life in Post-Row America. Shocked and motivated by the Dobbs decision, she channeled her energy to gather essays and interviews from contributors such as Jessica Valente, Michelle Goodwin, Alyssa Milano, Jennifer Baumgardner, and more to share the importance of reproductive rights in America. Here is our conversation. Tell us about what inspired you to put the anthology together. Yeah, really just my anger, outrage originally over what was at the time the leaked draft of Justice Alito's opinion on the Dobbs case. And I got emails from and text messages from friends who are also parents who were really just beside themselves with concern about what do we do now? And the morning after that opinion leaked, a friend of mine and I were talking and I was sharing my outrage and I just, I couldn't stop saying like, what, this is so crazy. And she's, you know, I'll donate, I'll vote. She's like, no, no, no. But really, what are you going to do to make a difference on this issue? And I really took her challenge to heart. I, I realized that I could do all of the text complaining and social media posting I wanted. But actually, in the end, all of us are faced at a certain point with like, well, what skills and tools do I have to actually make a difference? And one of the skills and tools I have as a writer is writing and bringing people together around the written word. And so I simply decided that what I was going to do was call on people I didn't even know and just start putting together an anthology. And the first person I called was the publisher of She Writes Press, Brooke Warner, who I met. We were both teaching at a conference uh, through Story Summit out in Santa Fe last year. And I texted Brooke and I just said, we need a book. How fast can you get a book into the world? And she said, I can do it really fast if you'll edit it. And we just decided we would run with it. And that's what we did. And I believe that there is a responsibility one has to one's children. I have three children who are not so, so small anymore, but two daughters and a son. And when I think about the world they're inheriting, I get worried. And I figure we all have to do what we can to to leave them a world that respects who they are as human beings, their freedom. And this is my effort to step up the work in that direction. You know, as a writer, it takes a village. I don't think people understand this. It takes right. like an army of people to get a book <laughs> put Absolutely. together. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I write about that at the end of, you know, in my acknowledgement section. Yeah. You know, we pick up books and we think, oh, here's this person's name on the cover. They did this. Well, actually, no, you know, they did part of it, but it really right. is the ultimate group project. <laughs> It is. It is. So, well, I went through the interviews and the essays and there's so much to talk about. And I want to hear from you, some of the ones that you want to reference for listeners that are are incredibly impactful. But one of the things that really resonated with me was, I think it's Rebecca Traster's, that our silence left us vulnerable. And I told you about my mother's story and she's one of the girls that went away. And I know Ann Fessler's book, titled The Girls That Went Away, really moved some of your SAS as well. But this this silence of the generation before, before Roe v. Wade and what was happening to women and single unwed mothers. 
And Rebecca said something that we have to protect the storytellers. So let's talk about some of the storytellers in your book and people who really put themselves out there to make it real on what it means to lose Roe. Do you want to highlight a couple that are in the book? Sure. One of the people that I first reached out to was a woman that I went to high school with and we are Facebook friends. And I had noticed that she, in in the aftermath of the Dobbs decision, had become very vocal about standing up for a woman's right to bodily autonomy, a person's right to bodily autonomy. And I reached out to her because I sort of missed, I guess she had, had told her story on Facebook, but I missed the actual story. And I simply reached out to her and said, listen, you know, I'm working on this project and I have a feeling you have a story to tell here. Would you be interested in telling it for this book? And when you ask people that kind of question about their lives, you actually, you really have no idea what the answer is going to be. I mean, the answer could be absolutely not. Like, I'm just not ready. I'm okay with sharing this privately on, you know, my Facebook page, but do I really want my name in a book that's going to be published worldwide? I don't know if I want that. But Anne's response was, Absolutely. I would love to share this. I see this as part of the legacy of the child that that I lost. And her story was that, you know, she had a second trimester abortion because her pregnancy was not compatible with life. And, you know, she's not young. She was seeking pregnancy. It was a very much a wanted pregnancy. And she details what what that process was like for her and being led through the back door, you know, searching for a doctor who would do it, going through the back door of the clinic after hours to have this procedure. The, the people who are standing outside, you know, trying to protest, you know, these in these very, very painful moments in people's lives. And I know that that's it sort of an extreme case and not every case will be like that. There will be people who just simply do not want to be pregnant and that is their right too. And we have those stories in the book as well. And it was just very important to me to really be able to put in front of folks, our readers, really a range of experiences around abortion because Rebecca is right, you know, we we still don't talk enough about what it is actually like to make this decision. I don't even want to say have to make this decision. Sometimes people just make the decision. They do not want to be pregnant and that is their right. And that really ought to be enough. Having had three children myself, I I remember somebody saying to me, you know, you never understand better how important it is to have bodily autonomy until you've actually had the experience of gestating children, right? (laughs) It's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And nobody should be forced into a situation where they have to go through that if that is not what they want to do, in my view. Oh, absolutely. And something hit home for me too, when I was reading Robin Marty's essay, and she had to get a DNC. And that is something that I've had to have in my life. It didn't even... which is a horrific experience. It's so heartbreaking. And, uh, and I know lots of my girlfriends who have had that too, but I didn't even think that that was going to be something that Dobbs touched, but it does. Sure. Absolutely. No, it touches everything. It touches decisions that women find themselves making or needing to make or wanting to make in their lives. And anybody who thinks that this is something that's not going to impact their life, 
just hasn't lived long enough yet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> exactly. when you have, right. When you have, I mean, the, the statistic is, is that one quarter of women in their childbearing years will end up having an abortion or an abortion like procedure, right? A quarter of women, that's a huge percentage of the population. And that means that all of us know women, if we are not the women themselves, who would be impacted by this. So let's let's get the voices out there as you're doing, because I think it, this is happening. And I think you were born in 1975, right? I was 1974, right? Yeah. And <laughs> I got you by a year. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and I think to your point, when you as you opened in the book, we never thought that this could happen, even though there were clues along the way that something like that, that the threat of this kind of overturning of the decision could happen. But let's talk about how it disproportionately affects marginalized people. So 50% of the people having, nearly 50% of the people having abortions are below the poverty line. What are some other statistics or findings that you want to share that really kind of brings it home for people like who this affects? Well, I think it's, yeah, it's really important to talk about that. I think what we know is that a a majority of folks who are seeking abortions um, are, are already mothers. As you said, they are people with often not a lot of resources. Now, you know, one of the things I think we need to think about and, and wrestle with going forward is this question of, I, I do think it is true that everybody will be touched by this in some kind of way. But to your point, there will be groups who will, will suffer disproportionately because of these rulings. And when you understand that the difference of having $50 can be the difference between a person, a pregnant person being able to access abortion services and not being able to, because the cost, the $50 that it might cost them to get on a bus to the next state or the next town or whatever it is, wherever they have to go, that $50 difference can make all the difference in the world, right? If, if we're talking about folks often who don't have a discretionary $50. I mean, those are people who really will suffer. I've heard a a lot of people say, and I, I think this is something we do have to sort of hold in our hands, that, you know, people with resources will probably still be able to access abortions. When people can, until they criminalize leaving your state, to, to do it, if you can afford the price of a plane ticket and you can afford the price of a hotel room and all of that, you'll probably find a way. But there are millions of people in this country who don't have that privilege. And I think it's the responsibility of those of us who have some resources and to, to stand up for those people and to not just let our own ability to scurry our children here or there, blind us or numb us to what is happening for people who do not have those privileges. So, yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I learned through this process, by the way, you know, in talking to people like Robin Marty and talking to Elizabeth Estrada, National Latina Institute and talking to Margaret Chapman Pomponio, who is West Virginia Free. Those are organizations that are working on the ground every day to support reproductive health choices and care for people in these communities. And what all of them are most concerned about is how we resource this 
work and fight going forward, right? How their organizations are able to continue to operate so that they can provide those sources. So I know sometimes people think like, well, I want to do more than just write a check. Well, yes, do more than write a check, but also write the check because these places are actually closing down now because they don't have the resources to keep their doors open. I think something... I might get the number wrong, but it may be 16 or 17 clinics across the country have now had to cease operations entirely. And remember, these places are not just places that perform abortions. They they provide health care to communities in need. And when you close the doors of those clinics, you've denied untold numbers of people access to help the health care they need, and you've put a burden on clinics in other states where people will now disperse to provide them with healthcare support, which means it's then harder for people in the states where abortions are still legal to get the appointments they need for their healthcare, right? So there are all of these knock-on spillover effects, um, the rights they deserve. Yeah. It's it can feel a little overwhelming. It's a domino effect, right? <laughs> but I yeah. mean, yes, if you break it into parts, it's write the check, you know, support the organizations. What are some other things that make you hopeful? Because we had talked earlier about it's not a fight. It's we need to just all do the work now under right. these constraints. And they're big ones, <laughs> but, we yeah. need to, but we need to do the work, right? How do we do the work? It's a good question. I think I was really moved by how hopeful I heard Robin Marty and, and Elizabeth Estrada and Margaret Chapman Pomponio being about, about, and, you know, Jessica, Dr. Jessica Nuhavandi, she's a pharmacist. She helped change how pharmacists are allowed to dispense medical, medication abortions. And, you know, the FDA made a ruling that now allows, it took away the in-person requirement for uh, prescribing and dispensing uh, the medications that you need to have a abortion by pill. And she too was really hopeful. So I was inspired by them because part of what they they told me is what you understand when the chips are down is how powerful you may be. You know, I really, really hope that if people read my the book that I've edited, what they can come away with is that there actually are ways to be engaged and involved on this issue. And one um, is, of course, really pertinent right now because it's voting, right? I know it doesn't always seem like the most effective way, and we have all sorts of challenges to our democracy, but honestly, voting matters. And I, I always I always remind people, look, people died to give you this right. Like, don't take it in vain. It's meaningful. And it's not just the state, it's not just the federal level um, elections that matter. It's the state and local elections. If people who believe that we are all due bodily autonomy turned up in the numbers that we know we would have, right, at every election, I mean, we would be golden in the sense that 85% of Americans believe that a woman, a pregnant person should have the right to make the decisions they want around this issue, right? It's not even close. It's not, it's not like half the country thinks something and the other half, it's not. Almost all Americans believe that there should, at least in some instances, 
be the right to an abortion, right? And if we voted that way, if we voted our values and we turned up at the polls in those kinds of numbers, in the numbers we need, we would then elect people most likely who were willing to stand up for those rights. So we got to turn out and we we have to... Even in, you know, we've got to go to city council meetings and raise our hands and say, well, what about this bill? And, you know, what is your position on this? And I know it's hard. We're all really busy and all really tired. But unfortunately, I think we're in a place where, like, we have to do the hard work, right? If it matters to us, we have to turn up for it. We do. We have to turn up and turn out, as you say. Absolutely. Any impacts that this decision has that maybe you weren't aware of before you started this journey on pulling together the contributors? I think that surprised me. Well, the hopefulness surprised mm-hmm. me of, of, the, of the providers. I mean, I think the whole piece about weighing close enough attention. One thing, I've worked for women's nonprofits in my career, but I will as I do in my introduction, that I sort of took my eye off the on this one. I, I was at the 1992, I think it was 1992, March in Washington, and when Casey was in front of the Supreme Court, and it was an incredible experience. And, you know, the issue of reproductive health has always been extremely important to me. But I will say, I was not a person who was working in this space prior to May of this year, right? And I think for many of us who found this issue important in terms of our own, like, but but this is the whole point, right? We were born into a world, many of us who are in our 40s at this point and younger, in which this, it just never seemed possible, right? It never seemed possible. But the people who were working in this world knew it. They knew it and they documented for us (laughs) what was going to happen. So I was saying the other night, I picked up Gloria Felt's book, The War, which was published in 2004 when she was still president of Planned Parenthood. And she talks explicitly about the challenges that the, the attacks that were popping up all over the place in terms of Roe and our, our access to productive health options and all of that. For, for people like her, this is not a surprise. For people like Robin Marty, who wrote, was watching for a decade the challenges across states, you know, the legal challenges to these rights across states happening, you know, and she wrote a whole book about it herself. Um, but nobody, so few people were paying attention. And I think part of what was surprising to me is how little attention we were paying and why weren't we paying attention? Why was, why didn't this not feel top of mind in the way it should have to the average citizen. And I think going forward, we're really going to have to wrestle with that as a movement and as individuals. What do we do when we when we're told by experts in the field, hey, by the way, knock knock, we're in danger. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> what, how are we going to respond to that? 
You know, are we really, are, are we going to show up at the polls and elect the people that think are going to stand up for our rights? Are we going to do phone banking and text banking? Are we going to run for office ourselves? I mean, gosh, that's something. There's something you could do in your town or support a candidate. I don't know. There's so many things we could do. And I, I really, I worked for, for a number of years for an organization called the White House Project. And uh, it was the goal of that organization to increase women's um, power and representation in every office and f- sphere up to and including the White House. And they had a great program called Vote Run Lead that trained women to run for political office. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And I encourage anybody who has even just harbored a thought in their mind about like, hmm, I wonder if maybe one day I could (laughs) run for office. Go take the training. Vote Run Lead still exists. Go do it. There are lots of organizations that do it. Higher Heights does it. And I just think being, even if you're not ready right at this moment, learning the skills to run for office and stand up for what for what you, you want this country to be is so worthwhile. Uh, we need more women to take that step for sure. We do. And it's not easy. And we get the hesitation for many, right? And I'm so glad you brought this up because it is, it is this like, what happened? We all, it's not that we had our heads in the sand. It was just this, this lack of information and about the threat. What do you see changing that's going to help us beyond just the conversation being out there? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, I think we're really at a place with our democracy broadly where we really do have to make some choices. I mean, I, you know, I don't like to be nihilistic about it, but I think we are actually really in a dangerous point in the the history of this nation. And what I hope, I mean, I think we'll find out on November 8th how seriously people take this and a host of other issues, you know. I think Kansas was a great example of how people can be motivated by things like Dobbs to, you know, ruling like Dobbs to turn out at the polls and defeat propositions that are going to enshrine limits on reproductive health care access in their states. So, you know, Kansas was a great high point. We're going to see whether Americans feel, you know, empowered or angry enough or concerned enough to really show up and vote with their values. I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I had a magic wand and could predict, um, you know, whether what, what the result is going to be. Um, but I'm very hopeful and optimistic, um, that, you know, in particular, the women of America, um, will simply say, this is not the future that we want for ourselves or for the people we care about. Um, you know, I hope that that folks understand how consequential um, all elections are, but also how consequential this election will be. You know, the GOP has been clear about what they plan to do when they take control back of the House. They're not hiding it. It's not a question. I mean, they're, they're really honest about what their intentions are. And yeah. it scares me. And it's what's motivating me to do everything I can to raise awareness and, and to help encourage people to get out. 
What are some other things that you see like future threats? Because they're out there. Contraception plays a big role in this. Mm -hmm. You know, that was the perfect storm back in the 60s where there was a lack of contraception and and there wasn't Roe v. Wade, which created that kind of era of shame and surrendering pregnancies. What are a few more things do you think that are necessary to think about the threats are when it comes to voting? Like what how bad could it get? (laughs) What are some of the canaries in the coal mine, you know? Well, yeah, well, Clarence Thomas was pretty clear about it too. You know, I mean, birth, you've mentioned it, birth control is one thing. I mean, again, there's something that I think a lot of people would just simply think to themselves, oh, that, you know, come on. No way. (laughs) Right. I mean, here we are again, right? Oh, that could never happen. Uh, Yeah, it actually could because, you know, we no longer have the precedent that to protect our rights in this case. So there's a whole litany. And, you know, I mean, the legal scholars can go on for you. You I should have been an attorney, maybe, but I'm not. So, but, but, you know, legal experts can be very, can go on and on about what is at stake now. You know, I think clearly the other thing is uh, same-sex marriage will um, almost certainly be something that the Supreme Court takes up again. Maybe, I don't know. I hope not. There's there are any number of issues of liberty, freedom that just become fodder for the mill as a result of this. And I think we should not be lulled anymore into believing that they are off limit. They are not. And and again, the folks who are undoing who have undone Roe are not hiding their intentions. It doesn't take a lot to understand that. They are serious. They mean it. And it's it's an imminent danger, you know. So I just, I, I hope people can hold on to that and use that as motivation, as much as the positive motivation of just, gosh, don't we want to live in a society that respects your agency to make a decision about what your body? Like, really? That's where we, we, we don't want that for people? I don't know. And maybe I'm too, uh, maybe I'm too crazy and naive, but it just, it's, it, it just, it gives me chills every time I think about it. Oh, me too. I mean, it's, it's just freedom over your own healthcare decisions. If, if you look at it at the broad umbrella, and this is just one tenant of it to your point, then it's going to be contraception and then it's, it's marriage. It's individually taking away this kind of general freedom that we, we should all have to our bodies and what we do with them. There was a great there was an essay that I didn't get from the book for the book, but I, uh, Teresa Stack, I think, who used to be with the Nation, wrote an essay about for maybe the Boston Globe, essentially sort of like suggesting that, you know, instead of regulating women's bodies, we should actually regulate men's bodies. And she lays out all of these, you know, ideas about how we could regulate uh, men's bodies. And you read it and you think to yourself like, oh, this actually sounds insane, right? But at the end of the essay, what she says is, yeah, you think that sounds insane? Well, by the way, that is exactly what we are doing to women's bodies, right? That's what we're saying. We're saying women do, and and anyone who can become pregnant do not have, you know, uh, the whatever, mental capacity, right, you know, smarts, whatever it is to be able to make a decision about what happens in their own body with the counsel of their medical professional, their family, their God, or just them 
right? We deny, we deny the, the notion that, that we should be able to, you know, to make those decisions. And it's just, it's staggering, you know, when you think of terms. It's staggering. And, it, and, you know, it's one good example that someone puts in the book about the vaccine, where a lot of people are like, don't touch my body. I don't, my, my body, my, <laughs> my rights right. over a vaccine. And to think that it's brought, it's been put into this category of, of reproductive rights is just in, insane and that they don't see the contradiction in those two statements. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, I'm so grateful that you're doing this work and that you have put these voices together. Is there anything else that you would want to share with the listeners about this movement and this necessity to do the work, all of us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think it would really just be to not be numb, right? I, I know that the world is very overwhelming. And I know that every day we open up you know, our phones and we are greeted with a litany of terrible things are happening in the world and places that our attention is drawn and that help and they are all valid. This is not, my, my view is not, not that this is more valid than everything else. My view is that, yes, we have an enormous number of problems in this world and it is our responsibility as citizens of this country to do what we can uh, to shape the world that we want to live in. And part of the way that we do that is by voting. Part of the way that we do that is by, you know, supporting organizations that are doing really great work um, that's, that reflect our values. Yeah, it's that, you know, don't let the world numb you out. I also think it's important. Self-care is important, actually. I mean, I, I don't want to, I'm not going to tangent about it, but I do think... Oh, please do. I love it. I think it is important. (laughs) I think self-care is a big part of this conversation. Absolutely. I think it's very hard to do the work of movement building and social justice and standing up for rights if you yourself are out and if you're not supporting your, your own mental health and physical health. And I think it's important to take the time. I hope that people read books like Aftermath and, you know, a lot of other great material that's out there that details uh, the work that we have ahead of us. And I think it's really important to go outside and breathe deeply and take, deep, you know, take a deep breath, yes. take a long walk, lose yourself a little bit in nature or whatever it is, meditate and ground yourself. That's what one of, you know, one of the essayists talks about is, you know, grounding yourself for the work that comes ahead. Because, you know, if you're, if you have no resources on, it becomes really hard to stand up when it's time to stand up. So take care of yourself in whatever way that means. And then dig in, do, do the work, call, call people and suggest that they vote, offer people be a clinic escort. If that's something that you, you know, Mm -hmm. think you can do, because that's actually really important. And we have a great essay in the book written by a clinic escort who talks about why she does that work and your life and stand up for the lives of people you don't even know, because that's all we've got actually. Yeah. And to your earlier point, my dad used to say this all the time, never forget that somebody died for your freedom, your freedom, your 
your freedom and then your right to vote. I mean, it, it, it's a really powerful thing. And I, I love that idea of self-care and advocacy. Like in order to do this work, you also have to take care of yourself, all of us, yeah. because it, it is hard work and it's a long journey. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Exactly right. Exactly mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Our children will be, you know, hopefully their journey, their work, their fight, whatever it may be, is different from ours. But this is... We, every generation keep we keep at it because yeah. we are an imperfect society, but we can, as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King said, bend the arc of the world, arc of the universe towards justice if we work for it. Oh, I love that. Oh, give me chills. And I love that so much of this conversation, although as layered in hope. Yeah, I think that's something that's really important for people to remember that there is hope, even though it it can be discouraging and feel terrible. That there's a lot of hope wrapped in this. Because there's a lot of warriors out there. Oh my gosh, so many warriors. We're all warriors, you Mm -hmm. know? I mean, gosh, you're here. I tell my children this all the time, actually, right? That like your being here is the result of generations of people surviving things that you can't even imagine, right? And you're you're born a survivor and you have all of these incredible opportunities to, you know, stand up and make things better for the people who come after you. Um, that's such a great privilege. That's an honor. It's an honor to be on this planet and and to engage in the work that continues to make it a better place. We want that for every generation that comes forward, comes after us. I wish for everybody that they see themselves as warrior folks in this in this journey and that they'll engage uh, as they can. We all have different ways of doing it, but we can get there together if we try. Sounded like a song. Is that a song? I love it. No, it just sounded so quotable. And yeah, and actually, if I if I could mix a melody right now, I would. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Liz. You're so... You, Good job, warrior. Oh, yeah, warrior you on. Too. You're a warrior too. We're warriors together. We're yeah, all warriors. You. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. It was a oh, great conversation. Thank you. And and the anthology is terrific. And um, obviously, I'll, I'll share it with my listeners. And um, I bought a couple to have a little um, contest with too. So we'll make oh, sure that awesome. it gets in some. Yeah, make sure it gets in hands. It's really riveting. And like I said, I burned through it because all the stories are dynamic and different and really put shape to all the tentacles of this um, decision and what it means for everybody in society. Great. Well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And thank you for having me. This is you bet. You bet. Whether we realize this or not, The decision to overturn Roe v. Wade touches nearly every American directly or indirectly. Reading Aftermath's 38 essays from some of the most important, influential thinkers, activists, and journalists, you will understand the conversation is not about abortion. It is so much more than that. As Liz reminds us, we are all in this together, and we are all warriors. We can motivate change while supporting one another's freedoms of thought and choice. Here is to the road ahead. Charge on, warriors. Until next time, stay curious and be well.